for February 26, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 191. Life is getting less special. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject... The power of the movies viewed in theaters and not torrented and watched on a laptop or iPad uh, to a level of scrutiny that they probably don't deserve. This year's Oscar Nostalgia Fest podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Matt Rather, here with the panel to overthink all manner of millionaires congratulating themselves. Uh, So, panel, to begin our Oscars podcast, what is your favorite Oscar in the world? Any kind of Oscar. Any Oscar that you can name. Uh, hey, first in the alphabet, drink because it's not Peter Fenzel. It's Matt Belinke. Um, You know what? I have a strange one. It's not really pop culture related, but I kind of like it. Uh, so Grover Cleveland, the presidential election of uh, what year was it? Uh, it was I'm, I'm going to I'm going to space on this. But anyway, I think it was 1896. Uh, right. And so the. Um, Sorry, sorry. It was, it was sorry. It's 1884. I'm, I'm, I'm googling it. It's coming back to me. And there was an allegation um, that he had fathered an illegitimate child. Uh, and what he did is keep in mind, though, that this is the time before women could vote. And he stepped up and said that, like, it is possible that I uh, fathered an illegitimate child because I am, in fact, sleeping with this woman. But there are numerous men, including my law partner, who are also simultaneously sleeping with her. And so that, like, I will I will sort of take a joint uh, responsibility for her. And anyway, that that kid, the boy who was born, was sort of co-named over the men who could possibly uh, be his father. And his name is Oscar Folsom Cleveland. And uh, he did, in fact, after making that admission, uh, win the presidency in a landslide because he is that kind of – he is that's the way America rolled in 1884. Excellent. Uh, we're going to skip over Peter Fenzel uh, because I think for once it's time for Peter Fenzel to learn what it's like to be last in the alphabet. And if his audio was working, I'm sure he would be, he would be gurring at me right now. Uh, so, uh, Dr. David Schechner, star of Slashdot and Gizmodo. Indeed. Uh, analyzing. Uh. It's, it's not even fair, Dave. I think you've written two posts for overthinking it in the history of the site. One on uh, the science of Back to the Future and another on the science of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And uh, both times they have been some of our most uh, widely read posts ever. I don't know why some guys just uh. have it. <laughs> David Shatner. I, I, like, I like to think of myself as the Miles Davis of this site in that... Uh, you know, I might not do all that much, all that often, but when I do, I hit it perfectly. <laughs> and, and, and by it, I mean my wife. Um, oh no, that's terrible. That's not. No, I, no she's she's a lovely woman. I never, I never. But it was it's more a Miles Davis joke than anything else. <laughs> and um, quite a fine scientist. <laughs> quite a fine scientist in her own right. She's she's a way better scientist than I am. I mean, she's she's leagues ahead of me in science in the science things. Uh, but, but she is large with your spawn. That's true. Our son shall trump us both. <laughs> uh, yeah, my wife is pregnant. He's going to be the stallion who wants the world, right? I'm hoping so. <laughs> is that so? That's that's how satellites and moons are made in the uh, in the Game of Thrones universe, right? The stallion mounts the world, and then uh, anyway. That's um, right. That's how it works. Drogo <laughs> is back on the podcast. Thank you, Fenzel. Logitech headset button for being pushable. Excellent. Awesome. <laughs> Wait, the, the problem with your audio is you were just on mute this whole time. The, the headset was on mute, not okay. the button. Let me let me explain. Was... Let me explain that this is three hours later than we usually record the podcast because we've all been uh, watching the Oscars, so we're all a little a little punchy. Uh, so th- so thank you, Pete. Uh, but now uh, you're going to go last. I you know I hope you uh, I hope you're okay with that. Um, but now back to Dr. David Schechner, bringer of page views uh, <laughs> and, grind- and grinder of our server to its knees. At one point over the weekend, the server had had so little memory that it couldn't even shut down to reboot itself it didn't have enough memory to turn itself off because uh dave's uh, article was um being slash dotted uh but dave favorite oscar well and thanks to everyone who read the article by the way and oh, yeah. thank you thank you to bob stock my high school physics teacher for giving me the power to write that article <laughs> um 
Yeah, and, and also thanks to Pete Fenzel for producing probably the best Scooby-Doo moment in this podcast so far. I'm just going to mm-hmm. keep on saying thank yous until, Matt, you start playing some music and I stop talking or get uh, ushed up You know, I heard, I heard that tonight and I thought, why are they playing her on with the Imperial March? And it took me like, it took me about 30 seconds to, to shake my head and say, wait, 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 that's not the Imperial, that's not Queen Amidala music, that's... Uh, uh, you know, that's, that's homicidal ballet dancer music. Uh, oh, okay. I'm going to quickly answer this question because I actually have a serious answer to it. My, my favorite Oscar uh, is, is Oscar Peterson, the famous <laughs> Canadian jazz pianist. Excellent. Good one. Uh, really fantastic. But go out, uh, everyone, and, and listen to his recording of, uh, of Night Train. Uh, probably second only to the recording of Night Train that's in the original Back to the Future movie. But, you know. <laughs> It does, it does not have an experimental 80s speed metal uh, guitar solo in it. But other than that, um, pretty incredible. The, I, I also, my favorite uh, Oscar Peterson record is called Blues Etude. And it is, oh, yeah. It is a quite a great record. And you often can hear him grunt along with his yeah. solos because he sort of, he punctuates with grunts and he also kind of sings along with himself. And sometimes the piano mics pick that up. Yeah, and, and there are these famous, uh, other jazz musicians who are famous for singing along while they play and, and harmonizing uh, as they do it. And, and if, if Oscar is doing that or trying that, um, he's into some really freaky harmonies. Uh, and he's just, just a, a wretched vocalist. God bless his soul. Uh, great pianist. But yeah, anyway. Okay, that's it. Oscar, uh, Oscar Peterson. Excellent. Pete, just to marginalize you further and push you further to the end of the alphabet, you're going to have to like chug because Pete Fenzel is being pushed to the end of the alphabet. I am going to say that my, uh, my favorite Oscar is Oscar Hammerstein II. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> collaborator uh with um wh- who uh <laughs> uh wait who was clapping uh, collaborator uh, for that. <laughs> collaborator with richard rogers on uh, uh many fine musicals and mentor to one stephen sondheim uh sondheim says that oscar hammerstein taught him everything he like brought him into his house as a son and like uh taught him everything he knew about structuring uh structuring a musical and also did um did did something that I, I guess I wish sort of mentors would do more often. Uh, Stephen Sondheim, you know, who's known now as being a, a brilliant composer lyricist, uh, did uh, wrote his first you know show as a teenager and brought it to Oscar Hammerstein and and he said, um, uh, "How is it? You know, what do you think?" Um, what do you think of the? Uh, what do you think of it? And Oscar Hammerstein said, "Well, do you want me to?" Um, uh, do you want me to comment as a as a colleague or as a as a gifted uh, as as though you're a gifted teenager? He said as a colleague. He says I hated it, and here's you know here's why. Um, I think we're too nice to kids. Pete Frenzel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So yes, we may be too nice to kids, but we are especially uh, not nice to cats. And my favorite Oscar is Oscar the Cat, also known as Unsinkable Sam, who was a German cat on board the Bismarck, the famous dreadnought battleship, when it was sank in 1941 and was rescued from the water and brought on board uh, to the British Navy, where it served as a cat on the HMS Cossack, which was sank by a U-boat in 1941. He was uh, plucked out of the water, uh, and he was brought on board to another ship, the HMS Ark Royal, an aircraft carrier, which was also sank by a U-boat also in 1941. This is from May to November of 1941. Oscar was on three different vessels that were all sank. He survived all three. He died in 1955, uh, one of the proudest veterans of the Second World War. Ironically, he died in a desert. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was, it was, it's like, uh, yeah, the one, his one weakness was not being around water. Not being, but not nobody being knows, ships. nobody knows who, what Oscar's original name was because they were all killed in the naval battle. All the people who knew he was. But no, Oscar Unsinkable Sam, you can view a portrait of him painted in pastels in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, England. So there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's funny. He would have been good in movies like that dog that was in the artist. 
<laughs> that you know that dog that dog is like a cheap tawdry fresh dog fresh face dog benji is somewhere being like yeah you know if that kid had seen half <laughs> yeah, benji, benji is overweight right and like you know munching on purina dog treats he's, he's, he's just like, like ordering continuous shots of snossages and like just staring into the distance <laughs> it's bacon we all know it's not <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess there were some uh, there were some movie awards being handed out. Uh, the the well, I'll, I'll give my take on the on the thing, and then maybe you know m- maybe everybody can can weigh in. Um, it seemed to me that the kind of the meta theme of the Oscars uh, this year was. Hey, everybody, remember uh, it was nostalgia, but it was nostalgia of a particular time. Hey, everybody, remember when we had a business model that worked? <laughs> Weren't those great simpler times back then yeah. when, when we got you to give us your money in precisely, uh, not just to give us your money, but to give us your money in precisely the way that we prefer uh, yeah. to get your money in the way that is most, uh, most advantageous to us and least convenient for you? Um, you know, the, all the, all the, like, the, the high-minded sort of pious hand-wringing about why, why, what is it, what primal instinct drives us to go to the, to the movie theater and sit, sit with people alone and yet together somehow, in a way alone and in a way uh, together, while, you know, teenagers give each other hand jobs in the back row and, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Someone answered his own question. <laughs> the Times Square audience shouts at the screen, why, why do we go to the to these palaces with their their sticky floors and their bad sound and their you know I don't know I, and their you know pimply ticket takers why why this noble enterprise that we call going to the movies and it was crap I mean uh, which is crap right like it's better I, it's a, it's a lot better to watch movies on my on my television um, mm. you know in in uh, I hate to say it but in in certain ways not just in a way. Uh, which yep. means the statement I'm about to say is false. But but <laughs> on on a number of axes, the the uh, the experience of watching a movie at home uh, is is superior to the experience of watching it in a theater, especially in like multiplex theaters, many of which are just uh, just awful. And this this yeah, place- but you have, you have a girlfriend, man. You get somebody to watch a movie with at home. <laughs> I can watch a movie at home off a of Redbox. Like go get myself some ravioli and a one dollar movie. Go home and watch some Real Steel. It lacks a certain something. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't like robots. Like it has plenty of it de- robots. <laughs> it depends what brand of ravioli we're talking about. <laughs> what do you say about Contadina? How about Contadina ravioli? Is that like a solid ravioli, sounds, or is that a stupid? Li- you might need to, to augment it with a little additional sauce. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I tend, I tend to, like, when I get what, the ravioli out of the what you, package. What was that, Matt, like, an additional sauce of what? Like, of tears of loneliness? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no, I just, I have this thing that when I, that when I, when I get, like, a prepackaged, uh, like, Italian uh, dinner, I tend to, like, give it a little extra hit of prego or ragu or something, because I like it saucy. That's all I'm saying. I'm contributing to the conversation, okay? <laughs> I'm saying it's not. <laughs> Unreasonable to put marinara sauce on your pasta before you eat it. He's a madman. Stop him. We're all very punchy tonight because these Oscars really ground us down a little bit. I think I, they uh, did, they did, and and that was, and I think that was the thing. Sorry, I I don't mean to stomp everybody, but I want to finish my my yeah. observation, which is that um, the the fact that this this nostalgia seemed to be actually about a business model and not, though it was kind of tied into the the kind of pervasive cultural nostalgia of these big events like Super Bowl commercials and the Oscars that has to do with globalization and it has to do with. Um, um, the you know the American economy and the global economy uh, the um, it's uh you know, it's exhausting to endure. However, because. Uh Right, because you can kind of smell the desperation behind it. You know what I mean? You can smell the the desperation that has to do with like uh, it's really it's really about money and it's really about they 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 haven't listened to our uh, podcast which is called Decorative Arts. Uh, it's an ep- old episode of the Overthinking podcast from a few weeks ago um, where we uh, talked about what the movies have to do to, uh, you know, I don't know, find a better business model for the future. Yeah, I, Matt, I, I think you, you sort of hit the nail on the head about the, the, um, 
this yearning for like an early, earlier era of production that like back back then when when things were pure when things were good before or, or bits were distribu- distribution <laughs> right yeah, but I mean, like, here's the thing. I, I recently saw The Artist, and I think it, it's very interesting to compare it to Singing in the Rain, which is a, a classic movie about the same thing, about a silent movie stars and how they deal with the dawn of talking pictures. But think about Singing in the Rain, that it's, it's not black and white, and it's very much a talking picture. It's a lavish MGM musical. So, of course, like, you know, be, before you even get into the plot, the movie is sort of, um, uh, uh, sort of the the deck is sort of loaded in favor of sound, in favor of color, in favor of modern technology. And that, you know, putting aside the, the, the plot, like, obviously the movie sympathies are sort of like, movies are better now. And that even though it's, it's traumatic for Gene Kelly to sort of enter the dawn of sound, it's good that he does. And he's, he's going to be better off once he makes that leap and he starts singing and dancing, um, you know, and, instead of just being th- this sort of dumb pantomime. And the silent movies in Singing in the Rain are presented as very cartoonish and very um, silly, um, as opposed to as opposed to the, the the singing, which is like much more naturalistic and compelling. <laughs> okay. And then in the artist, it's yeah. And I mean, but I mean seriously. But in the in the artist, it's really the, the the sound is a tragedy, and you get the feeling from from the characters that like wow, you know movies meant something back before people could talk and the talking is really a gimmick um and 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 it, it is sort of like you know and of course the movie itself is black and white and the movie itself is is almost entirely silent and it and there is sort of this feeling that like among the people who made the movie is that like the the purity of cinema has been tarnished by uh you know it's sort of a cheap trick being able to talk yeah, it's like uh, it's like from another movie with uh, about the advent of the talkies, uh, where a woman solves a problem by shooting a guy. It's like uh, it's what G- Gloria Swanson says. Right, which is, I, I, I'm still big. It's the movies that got small. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's a okay. So I buy that. That's a uh, sort of competing. That's a competing read. So what's the I, okay? So I get it. So what do you? Um, what's your point about that? I mean, no. I, I guess I'm, I'm just agreeing with you, as I do in all things. Uh, that Hollywood, <laughs> it, there's there's obviously a siege mentality there. Uh, that's the sort of you know, if you just look at the numbers, Hollywood is doing just fine, right? Movies are making as much money as ever. Uh, but you get the feeling that like it's it's sort of a, a temporary situation. They're they're doing that by charging like twenty dollars for like IMAX 3D showings of things, and you wonder if they're gonna always be able to get away with it right uh, attendance is i mean attendance is down the rev- revenue is not quite as down you know i, yeah. I think it it, so, it, it it may be more uh i mean on the one hand they're being worried that you know like when the titanic the, the actual ship not the movie um hit the iceberg it didn't sink immediately right there, there was a time where their, their, their fates were, were sealed but it took a good hour or two before the thing actually like fully capsized and people died mm-hmm. uh, poor people died um but i mean and, and, they're, the and they thing maybe, that, oh, Sorry, go on, Dave. Well, sorry, I, I, I want you to continue. But you know, the, so on the one hand, it might just be that they're sort of you know eyeing the future and looking at trends and, and fearing that you know, well, it's good now, but it's not going to be good in five years. Um, and also that they, while they still may be raking in a ton of dough, I, I don't think they're the predominant taste maker in the sort of popular discourse anymore. Um, they've, they've been completely superseded by by the internet, and and so. Um, and so, and so that's got to be really troubling, you know, for, for people who basically make their living by telling other people what they like. Um, I, mean, I, think, I think one side of this that I think needs to be considered, because I think it's part of other places where we see similar themes, is just the, the demographics and the population, not of the people who watch the movies, but of the people who make the movies. And I think it's easy to underestimate the size of the swell and like the demographic curve that the baby boomers represents, as well as their sort of outsized influence and their outsized money. So to an extent... This nostalgia for a time where the business model worked is also a nostalgia for a time when, like, their bodies were working, right? And, like, I think you see a lot of transmutation of anxiety about getting older into things like industry and politics where you have a class of people who – there aren't a lot of people who are, like, a little bit younger than them that are still part of the club, right? There's kind of a big gap, uh, at least, you know, generationally. 
Um, you know, the idea that like Mel Gibson would still be making action movies at this point shows that there's a lack of viable replacements in the, in the future generations, something like that. Uh, that there is an anxiety that it's like, you know, oh, I wish things were the way that they were when not just when I could sell, you know, a movie for five dollars a ticket and make a ton of money, but also just when I was when I was young. And Although, it's, it's interesting. Gee, yeah. I mean. To the extent that we're talking about the artist, this is a movie set in late 20s. So it's not nostalgia for the way the business was in the 70s or 80s. This is nostalgia for almost like a mythological past. Well, right, right, right. The the, the platonic idea of Hollywood uh, as opposed to like an actual – actual the way the business used to be when these people were getting started. Yeah, but I think there's there might be a metaphor there, right? I mean, it's not a direct correspondence, and um, I mean, I guess I don't know how specifically the details of the artist play into what I got the sense of the sort of cultural moment of the awards ceremony in itself, which had so much contempt for itself, right? Like, like uh, which just seemed to hate the fact that it had to exist at the same time while it was following these very strict marketing messages that seemed really very much to be put upon it by a, a sort of managers who were outside of the performance process. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know what you mean. I know that it's not like we're not watching, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and being like, wow, wasn't it great when that was happening? But I, I do think that there's some element of it feeling personal. Uh, that's that's yeah. one of the things is that the people who were the sort of old guard of Hollywood who were in that room, they looked vulnerable in a way that I haven't necessarily seen this vulnerable in a public space in a while. Um, like the part about the governor was it the governor award. Is that the one where Meryl Streep introduced the really prestigious awards? There seemed like a real power in that presentation, a real authority there, a real confidence, uh, a real sense of safety. Whereas when they sort of wander out into this place where all of a sudden they're open to the vicissitudes of the market, even though they're doing fine, they're sort of conscious of the fact that they're kind of like on shaky ground. And I guess part of that is business, part of that is the trends in the technologies, but part of that is them themselves in their own positions. Um, yeah. And of course, I mean, let, let's not overlook the fact that Billy Crystal hosting the Oscars is a, is a huge, really, really uh, sets the mood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another, another piece was um, I watched a bit of the red carpet. Pharrell Williams did a really interesting but short interview where he talked – because he, he and Pharrell Williams and Hans, Hans Zimmer did the music for the Oscars. Right? They were the, responsible for it ultimately. Um, and he talked about how there were all these cool – they asked him how it's going to be. And normally he would be like, oh, it's going to be off the hook. It's going to be great. Like we're really excited. And he was like, it's going to be very traditional. Like I had some things that I wanted to do, but I can't do it because of the, the union rules and like the people that we have to deal with. So it's going to be pretty traditional, and, uh, but it's going to be good. There's going to be a couple of flourishes in there. You know, and it's sort of like, well, like, you know, and, it, and it's sort of like – and then the, the person went on to ask him like, Mo, it must be hard to learn all of the different songs because you don't know which movie's going to win, <laughs> which of course for all is like, I mean, I, I guess, you know, like um, there's a lot of music, but that's not really you know, the issue. But that, that's um, just another classic example of the Hollywood right-wing machine coming down on its anti-union stance, right? <laughs> Pharrell Williams is a scab. Is what we're saying. That's right. He's just a picket line crossing bastard. Anyway. I mean, it's not just about unions. It's about institutional thinking. And it's it's like, well, what would the Oscars be like if you... And I think mean, we've seen the Oscars take very small risks and just been not happy with the results at all, uh, yeah. which is kind of unfortunate because I like Chris Rock as an Oscar host. I mean, Matt, I saw you tweet that um, earlier. I did, this yeah, year. I did too. I liked the thing he did at the Magic Johnson Theater about how no one has ever seen the... I mean, I, you know, I like things that actually kind of what skewer the the self-importance a little bit yeah but, yeah yeah but you know guys like what, Pete, when you tell that story about pharrell there's an implication there that like we all agree that it would be great if the oscars would try something radical try something new uh turn itself inside out and i don't know about that shouldn't the oscars be conservative and shouldn't the oscars be there are a lot of award shows of the world right there are like the mtv movie awards there are the people's choice awards there are the golden globes and shouldn't the oscars be the one that is like the old guard doing the sort of like you know reminding us of the of the glory of hollywood in the golden age and and not really pushing the envelope of like how how um cutting edge an award show could be yeah, I think that was the main strength of this year's Oscars was that I do think that they did give a sense that this was the award show for the old guard. And it had an identity. It differentiated itself from the other award ceremonies to a stronger degree than it has that has in the past where it's sort of been competing not against, you know, Pirate Bay, but against the Golden Globes, which is to an extent a bit more of a threat uh, to to what it is as, as an institution. But no, I, I agree to, to the Oscars. But, the you know, the the uh, the Academy, which is made 
made up of of people who are in the business are you right. know, those people are concerned about their jobs. So the Pirate Bay is a a yeah. uh, you know is a threat to those people. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was a certain I don't know. I mean, my favorite moment in the Oscars, uh, and maybe you guys have some feelings about this, was when Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow came out, and and Robert Downey. I mean, this I don't think the whole Oscars could have been like this, and this was a little bit weird, but I think that it felt good because the Oscars themselves were kind of weird. Um, that, that, you know, Robert Downey Jr. came out and he was like making a documentary about himself as a presenter, which I felt like very much captured the kind of movie making mentality that like a lot of the Academy has contempt for, which is like, I'm just gonna do it myself. You know, I don't, I don't care if it's any good. You know, I just I gotta get this on Netflix. And then and Gwyneth Paltrow turned to him and was like, you're embarrassing yourself. Yeah. Like this is weird yeah. and bad. And like the way that Gwyneth Paltrow said it wasn't like you should you should go to the movies and see you know Titanic in 3D. Like there was an elegance to her and an impressiveness to her where I felt like there was some sort of alternative vision that you could arrive at that yeah, maintained yeah. the sort of power and the grace of the old guard of Hollywood while at the same time presenting it with something that was vivid and present as it, opposed it be- to you know. It would be almost like if they went for that as like a like a model of how to host. It would be something, and I'm just I'm just spitballing here, just crazy ideas yeah. off the top of my head. Uh, you know, young rising stars like I don't know, like James Franco, <laughs> and maybe maybe Anne Hathaway as a sort I of like, like yeah. comic bar. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go on. I thought, I thought Anne Anne Hathaway gave it the old college try. Franco looked stoned the whole time, though, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> he gave it the new college try. <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris on the Emmys and Tonys was one of the things you were talking about. Yeah, no, I did. Like mm-hmm. I, Neil Patrick Harris has has basically, as far as I'm concerned, he killed on the Emmys and he killed on the Tonys. Yeah, I think the Emmys is a far better award show than the Oscars. Like, just it's a more okay, entertaining. Okay, so, so, but there's, a, you see, the reason. Sorry, Matt, I don't mean to stomp you, but the reason for yeah. what you're saying is that the Emmys is a television show about television made by people who make television. You know what I mean? The the Oscars is a television show about movies, kind of controlled by by people who who make movies. You know what I mean? And it's they can't uh, they can't I don't know they, they can't get it right. I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's an issue of craft. The issue that like they would now. What what if they made the Oscars into a movie that you could go to the theater and watch? Right. Like, I'm, you know, what if all the theaters like had this big party where the theaters know, all opened up and you could go for free? The, the Oscars is mostly about old people these days, and I think it would be great <laughs> if they transposed the stories onto younger actors. But, let, me, let me propose something radical: that okay. the Oscars should not be entertaining to watch. the The Oscars is. It, it's it's like a college graduation, right? Like a college graduation is, by its very nature, it's going to be somewhat boring because it has components that need to be there. Um, and like you could imagine rethinking the college graduation from the ground up and like throwing out a lot of the traditions and making it something different. But that's like not what it's there for. Um, and and I feel like the Oscars, it needs to be this this thing where Hollywood sort of pats itself in the back and 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 it's like the one. One day a year where Hollywood is sort of like made it, – it, it becomes a flesh, right? It becomes manifest and it's there before our eyes. <laughs> that I, I, always, I always think of like – I mean think about all those stars in the room. They're scattered throughout the globe, right, making movies for, for almost the entire year. But they rearrange their calendars so they could be there for this one day because I think it's important that they all put on their tuxes and they show up because that's our idea of like what Hollywood is. And I sort of I, – I don't know. I mean like we could imagine – so it's really like, cool, we, interesting we, award show thing, but but that's not what the Oscars exist for. I'm sorry, Matt. I backed off because I didn't yeah. want to. I didn't want to uh, stomp you again. So that you're you're saying what you what you're advancing, I think, is is a sacramental theology of the Oscars. Uh, yeah, that, is, that, that it's it's church, right? Church is not supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be like it, it's it's supposed to uphold an institution, and it's supposed to have a certain continuity to it. And I feel like everyone's like, oh, the Oscars is boring. It's like I, I'm saying the Oscars is supposed to be boring. It's probably been boring since the very beginning when Bob Hope was hosting it, yeah. and and I. <laughs> I kind of hope it's still boring like 50 years from now um, because like, you know, I feel like it wouldn't be the Oscars if it wasn't. Here's the thing, like the documentary awards, right? Like those are always sort of like nobody knows what to do with those because honestly, nobody's seen the documentary short subject awards, but I would be like very upset if they stopped handing it out in the primetime ceremony because that's yeah, part was, of what the Oscars is. It was upsetting when they moved it. Do you remember the year where they had, because all those people are sitting at the Oh, they wouldn't let the them orchestra. come down the aisle. Yeah, yeah, they had, they had microphones at the top of the aisle and they filmed that there but you see what that is 
I, you know what? Actually, I take back what I said. Right. It's actually not even it's not even that forward thinking. The Oscars being a TV show, um, the Oscar uh, uh, of a thing. The Oscars is a TV show of a theater production about movies. You know what I mean? And like, like, yeah. so right, when you move the camera, you know, when you move the documentary presentations to the back of the uh, to the back of the aisle instead of, you know, the front of the orchestra where Angelina Jolie is sitting looking Damn fine, uh, if I do say so myself. Um, the uh, the um, what you, when you move the camera, you're you're making film or television. You know what I mean? You're you're putting the camera in a different place. Like you're you're telling the story visually by walking uh, by you know walking down the aisle. You're doing a theater show and saying that it takes place uh, it takes place on this stage. You know what I mean? It's actually important that they stand on this very spot on the earth. Uh, rather than a more camera, uh, you know, a more film and TV mentality, which is that it doesn't matter where you're standing. We can point the camera at you. We can move the camera around you to accommodate the uh, the thing, which, Matt, is of a piece with, with what you're saying. It's not just that it's church. It's Catholic church, right? I mean, and Catholic <laughs> church being the church where we reenact, uh, you know, we reenact um, kind of skits uh, that that uh, point at greater spiritual truths, right? This, uh, which, you know, they call sacraments, the, the Catholic Church does. That is to say, they're signs, <laughs> they're visible signs, they're visible sort of reenactments of kind of larger spiritual truths. And you're saying that the, the, um, the larger spiritual truth of Hollywood is what gets kind of enacted. You said made flesh, which is what got me thinking of religion. You know what I mean? Like the word made flesh. Yeah. This is the, you know, this is the idea of Hollywood sort of made flesh and, uh, and dwelling, dwelling among us, I suppose. Yeah. That's why I guess I got very uncomfortable when they started being like, maybe there could be two hosts, right? Because that to me, it's interfering with what makes the Oscars, the Oscars. Like if you didn't announce what the technical awards were and have a role in a package, about it, if you didn't have like the president of the academy come out to say a few words, you know, if you didn't have a lifetime achievement award, like those things don't necessarily make the show better, but they make the show the Oscars. So, wait, who you know? was the lifetime like, achievement like, award this time? Was that the makeup artist guy? It was the makeup artist guy, Oprah, and James Earl Jones. Oh. So they, oh, that was okay. That's how they did it. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So, so they did, yeah. they did relegate it to to a different night, which is a relatively recent thing. Right, you used to have to have like cart, you know. Yeah, and they, they uh, did it. They uh, did it as a you know, Harry House uh, out on stage and, and have him give some rambling, you know, thank you speech to people that have been dead for twenty years and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I think, think I like how they approached. They did, sorry, sorry, you guys remember when they did it to uh, Blake Edwards and he came out in like a wheelchair and did like a routine where the wheelchair malfunctioned and he crashed through a brick wall. <laughs> I remember that was very funny. I, I really like Blake Edwards because I'm a big fan of the Great Race, which I realize nobody else has seen in America besides well, me. Well, here's here's a question building off of this idea of the Oscars as a performative ritual that reflects like an underlying meaning. Um, and there's a there's a tension there that's different from the tension between make it make it new and keep it old. Between like how, how do you perform it? How do you, I mean? I want to say perform it well, right? Like. Uh, there, there are ways – I've been to churches where there's been like an organist who's used to playing piano, for example, and thus they always lag as the song progresses and because there's the lag between when you press the pedal and when the air goes into the pipes where the song gets gradually and gradually slower. Uh, and, it, and it really takes you out of the experience that's presented by these rituals. To be fair, so, as someone who's made a living as a church organist in his 20s, that is very hard to do, right? It's oh, very, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. It's very hard to yeah. hear the song in your head and uh, – and hear something else out there in the world and keep your fingers going in time with the song in your head and not the song that is coming back to you via the, anyway continue Sorry. but but i think that there's something to be said for when you're performing in a ritualistic way to try to bring about the actualization of this idea make this idea manifest there's something to be said for for doing it as if it were the first time every time um, at least to some extent, like do, doing it passionately or, or doing it, uh, I mean, not recklessly, but, but with, with energy and focus. Like, I, I don't know. I'm just thinking more about Billy Crystal as a host and he was so inside baseball about the Oscars and he was so self-aware and, and, it, and it's not just him. It's the whole writing staff and the way the whole thing was branded and put together. Um, but there was this, a bit about it where it felt like the Oscars didn't to me, maybe if it wasn't that they were not entertaining enough, but also that they weren't committed enough to fully realizing the rituals that they represented. 
Like, they didn't believe enough in themselves. Like, the people who were giving the acceptance speeches didn't seem to be appreciating the awards as much as they should. It was almost like, I wanted people, I wanted there to be a Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. moment. I guess there sort of was, but like, I wanted there to be more investment in like the fact that we're doing this thing. You know what I mean? Does that, does that make sense, or am I totally off base? This is, about I mean, this? look, let me, let me sort of advance a proposition for debate for you to agree with or disagree with. Um, life is getting less special. You know, life, life, life. is getting less special. Yeah, <laughs> life, wow. life is getting less special. <laughs> Your life or, or life in general? <laughs> certainly. Yeah, certainly not the life sciences. They're awesome. <laughs> no, that, that is to say when um, there's a famous story about uh, about that George Clooney tells uh, when he was a TV star back when he was a TV star and he was traveling with Mel, his friend Mel Gibson and Mel Gibson was a huge movie star right and they they flew into an airport and they got off a, a plane together um, and in the terminal uh, everyone came up to though Mel Gibson was a far bigger star everyone uh, everyone came up to George Clooney, uh, and no one, there was this weird border around Mel Gibson where people were almost afraid to approach him because Mel Gibson was a movie star, and movie stars are larger than life. They're on a 50-foot screen. They're remote. Yeah, they're they're they are, inaccessible. They're, and, they're, and, they're the modern-day angelic class, right? Sure, right. And, the, and TV stars are in your home. You know what I mean? Like, you, you sit naked, you know, in front of your television, or maybe that's just me. And uh, you, you know what I mean? You, <laughs> now I know why you enjoy it so much. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Continue. I, again, I, I, you know I, I mean? still don't you see can... why you're not going to the movies, Matt. First thing, <laughs> first thing in your in the morning, drinking a cup of coffee in your boxer shorts, you can turn on television, and you know what I mean. Those people are with you, and they're with you in that mode, rather than being movies, something you go out to, um, you know, something you dress up for, maybe even something that's combined with dinner in a date, you know. And uh, I mean, and we don't do that anymore. And and you know, not only have like. Uh, has the class of movie stars uh, kind of been diminished because so many of them are doing TV shows these days and because uh, really there aren't movie stars in the business sense anymore. That is people who can open a movie and guarantee an audience will come. I mean, maybe Will Smith, right? Like uh, maybe Johnny Depp, but uh, Mm. no one else really I can think of like those, you know, so in a business sense, they don't exist in a cultural sense. They don't exist anymore um, because so many of them are crossing over into doing other things. Did you notice the voiceover? the car commercials voiceovers by jeff bridges uh the dude yeah and that right and that used to be something that would be like in that golden age of hollywood when tv was something that was looked looked down upon doing a voiceover and i you know what i mean not even hey this is jeff bridges for whatever the hell the car was but yeah, doing yeah, a no, voiceover it, for a commercial. it's the sort it's the sort of thing that you would do in you know steeped in much ignominy and seclusion in japan you know but this right right like this, you, you yeah. skulk away to japan to do it so, so when you're saying life is getting less special you're saying that the life of a movie star is getting is getting less special. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and before you answer, our sense of self worth depends upon. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll let you get in. You, you're still building your syllogism. No, I, right. So go for so, it. So <laughs> it's um, uh, so right. Everyone, not only has everyone become a TV star, but everyone has become like a tweet star. You know what I mean? That is to say, uh, everyone is kind of expected to be accessible, and we're, we like, you know, I know what Neil Patrick Harris is eating. You know, um, because he's like taking pictures of it and and posting them on Twitter, you know, Uh, and it's not just the you know, it's not just your Will Wheaton's and your, uh, you know, I don't know, your Felicia Days who are doing this kind of thing. In fact, the 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 people who kind of came up on the Internet are a little more savvy about it. It's your I don't know. It's your uh, your Patton Oswalt's. It's your. I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think of like who's the most famous person who I've seen a picture. Ashton Kusher. <laughs> well, Puff yeah. Daddy does a lot of tweeting. Um, right. I yeah. love Puff Daddy's Twitter. You know. You know yep. what I mean. So the the idea that there is, um, the, just the same in, in kind of the same way that that uh, high class goods are being replaced with luxury commodities you know the idea of a of a rarefied kind of celestial uh angelic you know above us hollywood class i think is is in decline right I mean, that but, seems to be true. And that's, but I, it's, that's, what, and that's yeah. what I mean about life getting life getting less special. The the kind of the kind of 
details of life of everybody's life are becoming more well, well known and in in doing so it's kind of like we lo- we think that sort of cheapens it that thinks it well, because there's a, the other way of looking at it would be that because things because when you do a thing that matters or you get a thing that matters to you there's so much more of an opportunity to sort of create a semiotics and signification around it that you can like make things that would otherwise not seem special feel a lot more special like so on one hand yes you can put your dinner on facebook and that makes everything seem very gauche and dross and all sorts of other sorts of words people don't like to use uh and like they all oh, this is like a crappy life that we have where somebody's dinner is the thing that I'm supposed to care about. But on the other hand, you can publish your dinner, right? So it's like it makes the – it elevates the – is it a question of elevating your dinner or bringing down everything else, well, it, right? And, and uh, there's a rebalancing that's happening, right? A, like, yeah, um, exactly. It's a rebalancing. You can publish your dinner, but so can everybody else. And in that respect, no one's dinner is any more important than anyone else's dinner. Uh, well, I mean, which is which again underlies why you really should be adding sauce to your ravioli. <laughs> but I also, <laughs> this is true. Right. If you put a little bit of ragu in there, if, if maybe, if maybe you threw a little bit of prego on that thing, you know, I think maybe. I mean, I think. <laughs> I mean, there the are whole industries. The has been pretty merciless. Yeah, there, there's there have been uh, whole industries. There are whole industries that are dedicated to figuring out whose dinner is most special. Yeah. Right, like all sorts of like social media metrics and marketing strategies, and like you know, how do you determine? So so those things those things depend to a certain extent on being able to control the conversation, right? And I guess I guess what's happening is that the sort of powerful the the politics of controlling the conversation have have shifted, and that's true. That's definitely true. And so so the idea (laughs) of the production of meaning, right? Uh, being a part of, you know, I exclu- being uh, what confined to a kind of exclusive class of meaning producers that that has shifted, and maybe that's what I mean by um, life becoming less special. It's not that life is becoming less special; it's that our definition of special is becoming infinitely fragmented. Uh, this is sort of what uh, I was talking I, about in my like least popular thing that Overthinking has published in the last few weeks, which was my Katy Perry article, <laughs> <laughs> where yeah, where it's like celebrity sort of ceases to exist and kind of gives up herself to the world, right? Which is probably different from what I actually wrote, because I was really tired when I wrote that. I don't even remember. I need an editor. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, buddy, know, don't look at me. <laughs> I know. It's, someone said it to me, and I'm like, well, you know, if you find one who's willing to stay up till six in the morning. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> you get... Even... I am on the West Coast, and you do turn in those articles pretty late. Yeah, but at any rate, like... You know, there is a there is a change in the way that meaning is is being, and of course, you know, does meaning exist? Is meaning something that we should even be talking about? We have these ideas of meaning, but do the ideas of meaning correspond to something that you could call actual meaning? Like these are all questions that we can put into the conversation in one degree or another. But the uh, the idea that certainly the idea of whatever it is that this word meaning is referring to is being controlled by people who are sort of auteurs of themselves and creators of their own like lives and of and of their own representations, like. That has certainly like been ebbing because the new science of whose dinner is the best is not like who made the best dinner in an active sense. It's the passive sense of like whose dinner is being looked at the most, right? Like or being responded to the most or engaged with the most. Like what ways of looking at a picture of a plate of ravioli are the most like successful, resonant, captivating? Like what what qualities make that desirable, right? Like and that's the way in which. These things that used to be rarefied sort of by origin are now being rarefied by like mar- the market of ideas, um, and uh, which is the way that all of us have generally had to live with very few exceptions for a very long time. <laughs> like we don't get to be famous just by virtue of who we are. Maybe among our families, you know, your cousins love you, your, your parents love you, you know, your yeah, kids. Speak for yourself, Pete. That's true. Yeah, your parents don't love me. That's God. your grandma loves me. She's a nice lady. But um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, I don't know. Does, does that – but does that, that – that, the question is, does, I guess that does seem more common. But are we talking here about something that's extending as a, as, a, as a precursor to this idea of a loss of rarefication? Is the precursor to that like an aristocratic social system? Is that what we're being influenced by? Is that what we're feeling the loss of? Um, rather than the sense of intrinsic specialness of life. Sure. Well, right? I mean, like, this is a wonderful – 
Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, okay, yeah, I see what I mean. I see what you're. I see what you're saying. I think one of the one of the byproducts of an aristocratic social system is a sense of the specialness of life. Like, I, you know, I, I'm sure everyone is watching a lot of Downton Abbey, and like, it's you know the the uh, Hugh Bonneville character in Downton Abbey, the sort of paterfamilias. Um, uh, it, you know, talks about like it's important that we dress for dinner. You know, it's important that I not like that I only give in to this newfangled invention of the of the tuxedo, uh, and you know, as opposed to white tie and tails, which is what I would customarily wear. Like uh, only you know only on very informal uh, occasions, and when you know Dame Maggie Smith is not coming over for dinner because uh, uh, you know it's important that somebody uphold. Uh, the best that we think that life can be. So I think, uh, you know, so I think that one of the byproducts of, of an aristocracy is a sense, uh, you know, a sense that, that life is special and life is good. And somewhere, uh, you know, somewhere, somehow, someone is, uh, someone is doing it right, right? Um, but I, I do take your point about, uh, about it's, not, it's not exactly what I'm saying. The, the dynamics of it are, are, are a lot more complicated, and the the we're kind of all complicit in the nostalgia, which you know, which I am purporting to what uh, uh, decry. Mm. <laughs> we I, we I just actually, trumped uh, all over. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I, I actually had a, a totally different interpretation of, of what you meant there, Matt. Although me trying to uh, enforce my meaning on it is pretty much moot when when you actually know what your meaning was at the point. Um, but <laughs> I, I think it's always part, still part important. Of, but the author is dead, Dave. Go ahead, say what you're going to okay. say. I, maybe, maybe, oh. maybe, maybe maybe Pete would like to say what I would like to say about what Matt would think about what Matt's thinking. <laughs> Um, now you're talking like an English major. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to take that. Okay. Um, so, uh, okay. Yeah, I guess uh, part of the, the whole thing about uh, the, the sort of um, crowdsourcing of, of popularity and the crowdsourcing of fame, that the fact that you could put, uh, you know, your dinner on the web and, uh, you know, have uh, the, you know, non-zero probability that millions of eyeballs will suddenly be looking and discussing uh, your dinner. Um, you know, part of that is that uh, it, it robs us of uh, what was a central aspiration for our culture for, you know, a century or at least half a century. You know, it, like I, I've been saying and we've all been sort of talking about how, you know, the old Hollywood or at least the mythos of the old Hollywood occupied for our culture a sort of, you know, quasi-angelic class. And, and angels are, you know, the class that we, we all aspire to, right? They're the, the holy, infinitely powerful uh, beings that are, are closest to God. And they, they are rid of all of the, the flaws and fallacies that, that human beings have to suffer for. And so it's natural to aspire, oh, I wish I were amongst them. I wish I, you know, it's the whole reason why people want to go to heaven after they die, uh, or believe that there is a heaven after they die. It's like, oh, I'm going to go uh, and get to live in this, this you know, greater than Edenic place uh, where, where everything's wonderful and my, only my pure mortal soul exists afterwards. And, and the idea that uh, in his or her own right, you know, anyone could acquire fame just using the new media um, robs us not of the ability to become famous, because obviously we all now have, you know, an easier door into it, but, um, but sort of robs fame itself of its significance. Like, if we can all be angels, then no one is really an angel, on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, you know, if you, have, if you have this entryway to, at any point, show the universe, you know, all of your incredible inner qualities and, um, and, and thereby become famous, and you do, and you fail to become famous, uh, it only really, you know, reflects badly on yourself, right? Like, you have, to, you have to face the hard-crushing truth right there and then that the reason why you're not famous isn't due to lack of access. It's because, you know, there's people, don't, people don't like you. Uh, or at least, like, not everybody likes you. You know, not everyone around the globe likes you. Yeah. This feels very much like a Freudian conversation, right, where you're sort of going after – or like a post-Freudian conversation where you're going after that big object of desire, but it's a nature of the psyche and the human condition I, just by I its actually, destruction. I, yep. I think of it as like an Augustinian conversation, right, because it's, oh, yeah. uh, it, it's not the desire for a good that you want. It's not the good that you want. It is the, it is the sense of joy you feel in, anticip- in, in, uh, in anticipation of receipt of the good that you mm. want. Right, you you want to order something, and you want that that week while, um, or let's face it, two weeks while Amazon ships it to you. Uh, you want that time where you know it's coming, um, because it's it's much sweeter than the time where you actually have the thing or use it. 
Yeah. I, I, was, I, was, I was just saying also that you're motivated by this desire for a perfection that really is unattainable. And if you were to attain it, even if you fully realized that there's something about your psyche that would be incapable of tolerating it, even if you, uh, you actually got it. That's the good thing about perfection. I, I've been reading some Chekhov recently and mm-hmm. uh, reading Stella Adler on, on Chekhov. And like the one thing she says about Chekhov is that, that there's a kind of sadness built into the idea of beauty. And there are always like old, lecherous old men, you know, uh, you know, being lecherous about beautiful young women in, in Chekhov plays and like lamenting the fact that their wieners don't work anymore. Um, the, uh, the, the thing about beauty is that like, you can't ever have it all, you know what I mean? And that's the thing about desire too, in, in general that like, it, you know, it, the state of wanting, right. There's always something more you can want. So one of the, I mean, one of the good things about, about the idea of, of the perfect or the good is that you can't, uh, you can't always have it. You know what I mean? There can't be any perfect Oscars show. Uh, you know what I mean? You can't... Um, yeah. you- because nothing is perfect but Allah. <laughs> or sell or perfect sell but then gohan right. just comes along and goes super saiyan 2 and it goes all crazy do you want to jump in at this point yeah you know what i mean just sort of getting back to the the thing that we all agree on is that there's a sense that the hollywood is in decline that that things used to be better movies used to be better the business model used to be better and and that like you know Everyone involved in the Academy Awards seems to be fighting this feeling that that the good times are gone and will never come back. But it sort of occurs to me like Hollywood has basically felt that way since the very beginning. I mean, look at look at the artist. Like you know, you know, there are definitely people who felt that when sound came along, the sort of purity of movies was destroyed, or when the Hayes Code came along, uh, the purity of movies was destroyed. When 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 movies became very censored, um, same thing that um, when. Um, like when television came along, right? Movies felt this existential threat, right? And that's why movies became widescreen. Everything used to be square. Everything used to be four by three. And the reason movies became very wide and they did all the cinemascope stuff uh, is that they, they were trying to offer something that television couldn't offer because otherwise they thought that they were going to be gone. So, you know, that's why you, you get all these uh, experimenting with 3D in the 50s and 60s. You get this uh, smell-o-vision stuff. But there's always this feeling, and then of course, you know, by the time you you you've barely gotten past that, you've barely gotten it into your head that okay, movies can survive even though people have television now, and suddenly there's videotape, and then movies are afraid. Okay, now that people can get copies of the movies and watch them in their own home, um, they won't actually keep going to that. And you know, so it's like there's always this feeling. Here's the thing: like if you think about music, if you think about uh, publishing, if you think about newspapers, um, now those industries are really facing these these crises as to whether they continue to exist. But 20 years ago, everybody in the music, and nobody was afraid that people would stop buying recorded music. Uh, nobody was afraid that people would stop buying newspapers. But Hollywood was very much afraid that that people would stop going to the movies and the numbers that they had because of VHS. So... You know, I, I feel like there's there's nothing new to this feeling that the sky is falling and that um, movies have really seen their their best days and everything is always going to be downhill. And that's not to say, keep in mind that they're wrong. That like you know, just because television didn't destroy movies doesn't mean that high definition 3D uh, television on demand won't to a large extent, destroy, destroy the business model for good. Uh, but it, it definitely always, I feel like in a way that's another one of the sacraments of Hollywood that the Oscars celebrates that the feeling that, um, you know, even, even like the way they had Bob Hope always host the Oscars back in the days when he was barely televised or just starting to be, but I feel like you always have somebody host the Oscars that just their presence up there on the stage sort of reminds people that movies used to have an authority that they don't have anymore. That like Billy Crystal, you know, was in when Harry met Sally and city slickers and, and, and who's going to stand up there 20 years from now with the same sort of elder statesman authority. Well, mm. yeah, and we don't seem to be. I mean, the idea of of who was it? Who were we talking about? The action star making still making movies? Was it Mel Gibson or was? Oh, it, we mentioned Mel Gibson. Yeah, yeah. yeah or yeah. but it's it's also. I mean, it's The Expendables. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's you know yeah. what I mean? Like, hey, hey, uh, you know what was that movie? That Hollywood Cop movie was it called Hollywood Cop or Hollywood Homicide with yeah. uh, Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett? Of those yeah. two people, 
it, it's not the one that you expect would be that is still making movies. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that is true. That's very true. Where's Josh Hartnett? Is he okay? <laughs> he like did like a log fall on his head. I'm gonna have to IMDb him now and see what's going on. I hope he's not. I hope he's not trapped somewhere like in a burning, a very very slowly burning building. Like that he's just like he's pinned under a rock in the middle of the woods and he has to cut his yeah. arm off. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's always has- a bad sign. Like when you go to his IMDb page and there's just a video of him asking you for change. Yeah, no, he had two movies this year, but one of them was called A Girl Walks Into a Bar um, with Rosaria Dawson, and he's pretty far down the list. Oh, wow, that's, that's not great. No, and he's got two <laughs> out there. Too. You realize I would kill for that job? Do you Do you I'm like someone I liked. I would kill someone I liked for that job. Um, oh, wow. Well, I'm safe then. Which I, th- <laughs> I think that's the plot of the player, actually, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. he's starring in an interesting-sounding movie that comes out this year, which is in the 1960s. David Sinclair. Oh no, he doesn't play David Sinclair. It's Christopher Lambert. Ooh, it's a Christopher Lambert movie. Gonna knock that one out of the park. That he makes a deal what with happened the devil. To Josh Arnett. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> he got maybe, a mustache. Maybe, he got a really. You can get him on the podcast. I think I think he's reached the point where we could probably get him on. I, I'd be worried that like once we give him our Skype addresses, we can't get him off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna keep dialing in. <laughs> oh, oh man. Josh Hartnett, I, I just remember having a conversation, and this is somewhat relevant, waiting online to see Shakespeare in the Park like four years ago, and uh, I was talking with, it was actually with, with Jordan's wife, who's awesome, and uh, we, were, we were talking about, we were playing the Kevin Bacon game, and she knew the names of all of the actors, this was probably like six years ago, knew the names of all the actors of like Josh Hartnett's generation that I didn't know, you know, like, like Josh Hartnett, and, um, and people like Channing Tatum and whatnot. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and it was funny to, and it was sort of funny and kind of cool in the kind of way where if you go to like Hawaii and you're watching a traditional luau, like, and they're like got the pig on a, on a spit or what have you. And you're like, wow, this is their culture. This is the way they think about things. Like to see her get excited to name the names of all these actors I'd never heard of, uh, who, who were famous at the time in specific circles. Uh, and I've referenced a couple a, a couple times on the podcast, what I see as sort of like the ghettoization of the famousness of Channing Tatum, how it's like very contained in our culture to specific people but uh anyway i'm just saying that like there's there's a bunch of people out there who sort of didn't really bloom into full-on movie stars and some of them are trying and the fact that uh what's his name jonah hill is one of them i guess i don't know i can't get behind that but whatever he's fine he's good i shouldn't be mean what if he ever says hi i shouldn't be mean i never met the guy he's probably nice um the oscar thing seems a little bit premature but you know it's political i guess i don't know it's got a lot of connected friends yeah I need to get some ravioli in me. That's what he's <laughs> Can you believe we have been podcasting for almost an hour now? I kept droning on because I got the sense that no one else wanted to talk. No, and I, wanted I, to make sure I thought I was droning on this whole time. The, the, the entertainment, whole... edutainment, the whole... full hour entertainment. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. You got to let us know what you think. Is, life get, is your life getting less special or is it just us? And your, life, <laughs> your life is getting more special. Uh, did you have a favorite Oscar moment? Did you have a least favorite Oscar moment? What do you think of the, the perpetual crisis? Uh, apparently, the, the, we should say the, the proud tradition of perpetual crisis in Hollywood. Uh, you can control the conversation by emailing us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com uh, calling or texting 203-285-6401 that's 203-285- 6401 or leaving a comment on the show notes in the uh on the show notes for this show uh where great conversations get started uh check out a little post that uh that is about uh indiana jones and nuking the fridge subjecting it to rigorous Mm -hmm. scientific scrutiny uh on our site and uh we'll be back this is uh, this is i think uh podcast number 191 which means we're we're coming up on the big 200 isn't that i mean isn't that a milestone i mean three years of of weekly podcasts it was i thought i was extremely proud of that i don't know and and matt you uh you um were on the very first podcast with me so you've been there for the whole journey haven't you was that the one about the animated the short animated films? No, live action shorts oh wow yeah episode number one <laughs> called called by the way salute your shorts I love how we made it super accessible right from the beginning. <laughs> uh, yeah, Man, I thought you were you were excited about this being number one ninety one because one ninety one is prime. Is it? I think so. Wikipedia tells me it's prime. 
It's the greatest prime. It's the Optimus Prime. It's awesome. <laughs> it is the Regulus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, a prime that thinks that numbers are just going to keep getting bigger and still be prime is the optimist prime. <laughs> nice, nice. There. Uh, this is when I knew so we're coming up on the big, uh, the big two zero. I, I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but do you have any plans? Uh, should we, should we do something special for the for the big two hundred? If I, if I'm on the podcast, I will uh, for that podcast and that podcast only wear pants. <laughs> don't. <laughs> Don't go crazy now, Dave. I think wear pants on your legs, Dave. On your legs. You know, you're not my boss. <laughs> God, dude. On some part of his body. You're not, the, <laughs> you're not the boss of my pants. I, uh, I honestly would say they'd be my pants, you know? Well, if you, uh, if you have an idea for how we should commemorate the thing, um, don't, don't say overthink overthinking because we do that, <laughs> we do that every nine months or so. Um, the, uh, you know... <laughs> Overthinking it is really the global campfire around which we all huddle to share stories and ideas about popular culture. You know, it's it's like the Emmys talking about television or, you know, I don't know. We, we, we try not to get too rarefied uh, about ourselves, um, though I, we inevitably do anyway. Uh, so I don't know. What should we do? Uh, tell us or uh, just come back next week. And until then, visit us uh, on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve you know a moment I also liked in the Oscars was when Colin Farrell came on and he looked at Meryl Streep and he was like, oh, Mamma Mia. We were together in Greece. We sang. We danced. I was gay. I think I fathered one of your children. Except that, that was Colin Firth, not yeah, Colin, Colin Farrell. It was Colin Farrell coming on would have been a very different thing. Oh, uh, folks at home, like, like, years, ago, years ago, I taped Colin Farrell's face to Pete's TV screen. He hasn't noticed it until tonight. <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you telling so, me he's not the star of the Big Bang Theory? That guy's <laughs> in everything. He's in the freaking evening news. He is in everything.